It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Well, welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Today, we welcome our guest, Sandy Phillips Kirkham, and I am going to tell you a little bit about her. Um, She is... And she's wife of Bill and enjoys life with her two grown children and two beautiful granddaughters and two fairly well-behaved dogs. Sandy continues to use her voice to help victims of clergy abuse. She currently serves on the board of the Council Against Child Abuse. Sandy has spoken before the Ohio Senate, a Maryland court, and appeared on a local television show in Boston. Her story, Stolen Innocence, was told in a documentary produced by the Hope of Survivors. Sandy works with survivors conducting victim support conferences, and she has participated on on panels moderated by SNAP, which is Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, sharing her perspective from the non-Catholic point of view. So that is quite a mouthful to say. She is also the author of Let Me Pray Upon You, Breaking Free from a Minister's Sexual Abuse, which um, Sandy gave me an advanced copy or a copy of this book to read. And as you listen to this story and as you listen to it unfold, I just really encourage you to find this book and get the whole story. We're just going to be able to get the get the snippets and highlights of it today. But it's a really, really good read. So thank you, Sandy. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So other than that little bio that I shared, tell me a little bit about yourself, what you like to do and who you are in your day-to-day life. Uh, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I've lived here all my life. Um, I enjoy playing golf. I love euchre. I love to play euchre. And I enjoy really social activities with a lot of my friends. I'm in a book club, um, do lunches. I'm not, I'm a social individual. So I do a lot of those kinds of things. Um, enjoy life in general. Uh, like I have two really adorable granddaughters that I watch. Uh, How old are they? They are eight and five and they are, they are the highlight of my life. So I spend a lot of time with my family and especially with those two kids. That's great. You know, I'm a grandma now. I I say that at every chance that I can get. But one of the things I didn't expect about grandparenting is how proud you feel of your children Mm -hmm. raising children. Mm -hmm. And that's just a whole nother level of pride in your kids, isn't it? Yes. And it's, it's, it's dimension that you hadn't thought about. And even the, the love you feel for your grandchildren is just incredible that you didn't anticipate. I think it's just, it's just a whole nother world. It is. I'm, I'm excited that we've embarked upon this journey. Yes. So, well, Sandy's story is about clergy sexual abuse, minister sexual abuse. And I've asked her on to share today because not only does she have uh, quite a remarkable story about this abuse, but also the aftermath of it was um, 
quite traumatic and and she has managed to find a way for advocacy for both herself and for others. And I think that's really inspiring. So just to dive right in, Sandy, can you tell us a little bit, I'll just let you start where you want to, the story of the abuse by your youth pastor turned senior pastor? Um, I was very active in the church as a young child. And even as I got older, I taught Sunday school. I was in the choir. Um, I just absolutely loved being at church and I was growing in my faith. I was baptized when I was 13 and there wasn't anything about the church and learning about God that I didn't enjoy and want to do more. Shortly after I turned 16, our youth, our church hired a new youth pastor and he was really like, unlike any other youth pastor we'd ever known. He um, came with new ideas. He was very charismatic. He was just uh, just different. And in a very short time, he really transformed our church and what was being done there. Early on, he kind of chose me as one of the leaders. He singled me out and made me feel very special, which, of course, I I liked the attention and I felt like I was working in the church for God by doing what this man was always asking me to do. Yes. Shortly after he arrived at our church, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexual inappropriate behavior. Uh, he promised he'd never do it again, that he was sorry, there was a mistake. And so the church. So he admitted to that first. Yes, he did. Okay. He okay. did. And he was 30. He was married with two children. And I think the elders at the time felt like this was simply a mistake that was made and they were willing to forgive him and move, you know, and let him continue as a youth pastor. No information was given to the congregation. No, no one was aware of this first incident. About six months after that accusation, uh, he was kissing me in my hallway after a youth group meeting. He waited for everyone to be alone. And then he told me how wonderful I was, how special I was, and how much he appreciated all the work I was doing in the church. And he bent down and he kissed me. And I remember being stunned. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to do. And I, I thought, well, this is my pastor. He wouldn't be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And so I, I just rationalized that as this was this way of showing how special I was. And I, I let it go. Right. Because as a teenager, you have complete faith in your church right. leadership. Yeah. And how, how could I accuse this man of doing something he shouldn't be doing? And so, but he spent the next year then grooming me to become even more attached to him in the sense of he, I became dependent upon him for getting involved in the church. He was putting me in special committees. He was, I mean, I was just thriving in the church and he was right there along with me, pulling me in. I babysat for his family. So that really gave him the opportunity to be alone with me. But we'd sit and talk about the Bible. He'd talk about, you know, how we can get more people involved in the church. But that whole time, it was really meant to get a closeness with me. So that took about a year. And then he eventually got to his ultimate goal, which was to have sex with me. And that really changed the relationship. Uh, I knew that was wrong. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. rationalize that. And yet he made me promise not to tell anyone. No one was going to believe me and that he needed me and that in God's eyes, we were married and this was God's will. And at this point, I'm so confused and I'm so afraid of what I will happen if I do tell anyone. So wait a minute, back up. So he, uh-huh. so he said in God's eyes, you were married, even though he was already married to his wife yes. and had two kids. Yes. Did he have any like theological, I mean, what did he, how did he come up with that? Well, 
he didn't give any reasoning. It just that that's part of the gaslighting. He kept telling me that over and over and that this was God's will. And that the reason he could do so much in the church was because of me. And then if I were to leave this, the church would not be the same and I would be responsible. He wow. also said he was a lot like David in the Bible and that God would work through him in spite of his faults. Um, wow. At one point, um, to show you how sucked in I became. And it, it, I call him a one man cult in many ways, because that's, that's how they operate. You know, there's a gaslighting, there's manipulation, all those things that they continually pound at and, and give to you that to a point um, I actually did give him a, a wedding ring to wear because I wanted to show my commitment to him because he was constantly having me remind him and assure him that I was committed to him because he knew if I ever got away from him and had started rationalizing him and understanding what was really happening, I may tell someone. So he really had to keep me under his thumb and under his control, which he eventually did. And at one point in the relationship, I, I gave up thinking that this was ever going to change. I mean, I went to him several times begging him to let me out of this relationship and that I felt guilty. And he would respond in one of two ways. Usually he would say, you're, you're no longer a virgin. No one's going to love you anymore. And I'm the only one that knows how to love you. And again, I'm, I'm confused and I'm, I'm, I'm trusting this person or he would become angry. Um, he became violent. Um, so sometimes, you know, he would just push me up against the wall and say, you're never going to be able to leave me. So stop talking about it. And wow. again, I felt trapped. I felt absolutely trapped. And it's not enough to, when you're in a trap, it's not enough to know that there is a way out if you don't see that way out. Right. And so for me, I finally gave up and just decided this was my life. I knew I'd never get married. I knew I'd never have children, that this would be over when he said it was over. Now it went on for five years. So you and were, you were how old? So, so 16, from 16 to, like to 21. 21. Correct. And it, 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 it was over. It ended finally because two people in the church became suspicious and followed him one night and found us in a hotel room. Um, he was given a going away party. He was moved to the next church. And I was told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And um, wow. I will tell you, I was devastated. I was even to say those words today. I, I love that church. It was, it was my whole life. I, I, right. And, and, and to be told that I wasn't fit to worship there was devastating to me. I just um, think that the, um, the dichotomy of him being given a going away party after this comes to light versus you being asked to leave the church because of your behavior is so asinine. Like, I, I just can't, I can't even wrap my mind around that. And it still happens today. I mean, I talk to victims all the time and, and, and it may not be as blatant. Um, sometimes it is, but the victim, it's easier to blame the victim. And you have to remember elders and church leadership and the congregation as a whole, they've been, been manipulated by this person as well. And they right. have shown them this wonderful, great side. And so it's hard for them, just as you just said, to wrap their mind around that this person who married their children, who baptized them, who sat at their bedside while their mothers was dying is the same person that's being accused of this evil act. And so it's much easier 
then to blame the victim and say, well, she enticed him or she must have done something to encourage this. And we all make mistakes and God forgives us of our sins. So we should forgive him. You know, well, there is a difference between forgiving someone and still having consequences. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences. And the other line that I think churches tend to fall back on is that we're not the place our place to judge someone. Well, yeah, we are. We we judge whether they're capable of doing their job. We and their are, character. Exactly. We're not judging their soul. That's got that is God's choice and decision. Right. But we need to judge, as you say, their character. We need to judge whether they're fit for the ministry. And by their own actions, by their own actions, they've proven that they are not fit for the ministry. Right. Why do you think just culturally or topically, why do you think it's easier to blame the victim? I know that to be a truism, but why do you think that is? I think part of the of that reasoning is that if we really look to the perpetrator as the cause, then we have to do something. You have to respond. You have to okay. fire him. And so that's that's difficult to do. So it's much easier to say, okay, neither one of them should have done this. And so we're not going to blame either one, but we're going to give him a second chance. Or we are going to blame her because he was not at fault. He, he, he was fallen into sin. It's just, it's that whole idea that we make mistakes, but there are consequences to mistakes. And I, I fall back and I tell people, you know, if, if a doctor has sex with his client, his patient, or a psychiatrist has sex with their client, they lose their license. There are boundaries that you are not to cross right. in, in every profession. A stockbroker, if he's caught with inside trading, he loses his license. So there are boundaries and there are ethics that are, are hard lines in the sand. And once those are crossed, then it needs to be dealt with in that way. I, I think the other thing is churches um, see this as a moral issue and fail to see it as a professional issue as well. So oh, yeah, the moral side well of said. it, yes. You can forgive this person. You can get him help. You can do all those things. But the professional side of it is he broke the ethics of his profession and he needs to be removed. Um, and, And when you give these men second chances, as was the case with me, you are giving him a second chance to reoffend, And you're putting everyone in that church at risk, whether it's male or female. And part of your part of your story um, is not only was he given a second chance, but a third chance and a fourth chance, and and without accountability, without right. without somebody saying this is wrong, you are not fit for this role, you need help, and we will no longer allow you to victimize anybody else. That didn't happen in his life, and it didn't. It doesn't happen uh, to a lot of victims. And clergy abuse. To this day, there, there tends to be. And so a problem with the evangelical churches and independent churches is they have no hierarchy. So they can keep right. it within their own little church, unlike the Catholic church where there's a hierarchy. Now, obviously, the failure of the Catholic church has shown us that a hierarchy doesn't always prevent this kind of behavior from continuing either. But there's more of an opportunity for independent churches to say, we are choosing to forgive this man. And after, sometimes they'll say, well, we, we kept him out of the ministry for a year. Well, that's, that's, that's not good enough. Um, and these men are very good at what they do as far as being charismatic and manipulating people. So yeah, for a year, they're willing to do that to get their jobs back. Wow. 
That's amazing. So it lasted for five years. Mm -hmm. And what happened to actually end the abuse? Well, he was moved to the next church. Um, that did not mean that his control and his influence over me ended. He would continue to write. He would continue to call. But because I was away from him, I began a little bit more independent and was able to say no to him sometimes. And so I was able to draw back a little bit. Um, there was one conversation he had with me that I refused to do to do something. He wanted me to come see him. I said no. And he said the words to me, if you don't come down here, I'll never speak to you again. And it was the first time I felt like if I say no this time, maybe he will never speak to me again. And I didn't, I, I said no. And he, he pulled away from me then. And um, did you feel, was, did you feel relief when he moved or were you sad or was it conflicted? I didn't feel relief because I knew this wasn't over. I knew he was going to continue. I I felt I actually did feel some sadness because he was my whole world for five years. I didn't know how to function. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was being thrown out of the church. So my whole life was turned upside down and he was the only constant at that point. Um, I wanted out, but I didn't know how to get out. And at that point, again, I had accepted it. I, I had given up trying to figure out how to get out of it because it, everything I tried to do didn't work. So I was, okay. I was in this thing. Um, I did feel some relief after I realized when I said no to him that that could be the end of it. I absolutely felt some relief then, yes. But in the meantime, he's in another pastorate in another mm-hmm. church and, um, and the accusations presumably didn't follow him with consequence. So he's has a chance to victimize again, which he did, which, which he, he did. did. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Absolutely. Unbelievable. I think part of uh, church culture that allows some of this to happen is churches don't want to take responsibility, both legal responsibility and moral responsibility, that something like this could happen within their body. Mm-hmm. It feels mm-hmm. like an accusation on themselves. Right. And so they won't accept that. And it's easier to just pass it on, pass on to the next person. I mean, as if they're a child who can't read and needs to go to the next grade level. So you just pass them on Mm -hmm. somebody else's problem. And I think they worry about, you know, how this reflects back on them. Right. But the reflection is not that you have someone in your midst who's committed sexual misconduct. The reflection is how you handle it. And that's what we need, you know, church leadership to understand. No one faults the church for having someone, you know, who can come in and fool everyone. But once you discover sexual misconduct, and abuse, then you need to deal with it. And that's how you're judged. The outside world judges you on how you deal with it. Right. Absolutely. So you kept this to yourself, kept it a secret for some 27 years, mm-hmm. um, married, had a family, had a career, um, and uh, were leading this, you know, happy life with your family. And then all of a sudden this comes crashing back. Tell me a little bit about, about that. Um, I write about that in the first chapter of the book. It is a moment that became uh, overwhelming to me. I I had a trigger factor. Um, I was driving out of town to see my daughter play golf in college. And I passed the road sign to the place where he moved after leaving our church. And that moment, I felt all of a sudden he was with me in the car. I was 
I, I just was, I was losing it as I'm driving down the highway and I had to pull to the side of the road and I just sat there and I sobbed for 20 minutes. Mm. And there was just this moment of, he shouldn't have done what he did to me. And this wasn't a love affair. He didn't care for me. I didn't have all that clarity at that moment, but there was this overwhelming sense of sadness. And I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to stuff this back down again, that this was bubbled to the surface and I was going to have to deal with it. And that's what began. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I mean, I spent two weeks keeping it inside, but I couldn't function. I was, I was in a, total anxiety mode for two weeks before I was finally able to talk to my best friend. Wow. And not your husband. No. Um, And he would have been totally supportive as he was once I did tell him. But I think women especially will understand our girlfriends are kind of our go-to a lot of times when we're in crisis or we have something that we want to share. And I was so fearful because I had seen the reaction of the church when they knew what I had done in quotes. Uh-huh. So I just, I thought I can't risk telling my husband first for fear of what will happen. If he thinks why, why I kept this from him, would he see me different sexually? Um, what would be, he feel like, did he feel betrayed because I didn't tell him before now. So I, I think I was testing the water, so to speak with my best friend. Um, and she was very supportive and I, I eventually did tell my husband, of course, um, and he, he was very supportive. Wow. And so this began a series of treatment and of discovery for you. What was that process like? I was very fortunate to have some very close friends that I was able to talk to. And one was a counselor. Uh, I had another couple um, that were very involved in their church, and I trusted them spiritually because this also involves, you know, having to deal with my spiritual life and how I'm navigating this anger that I feel toward God and my my anger that I have when I'm in church. And so um, they were very instrumental in, in guiding me and helping me along as well. It it, it took a long time um, to process all of this. And I, you know, I don't know, I didn't know where I wanted to go with it. One of the things that I did, and I came to this decision pretty early on, was to confront him. Um I just felt that I needed to be able to finally look at him and say, I know what you did and you had no right to do it. Now, I didn't know if he was still alive. I didn't know where he was. Um, it had been 27 years since I'd had any contact with him. But I did find him. I hired a private investigator and mm-hmm. located him. He was still a minister in Alabama. And there I, and I confronted him. And that was helpful in my healing as well to be able yeah. to, to, to do that. Now, what I hoped to gain from that meeting um, was that he would have some understanding of what he had done to me and that there would be true remorse shown that didn't happen. Um, Right. And it's, there's too many things to go into here, but there were many things that showed me he really didn't understand. Well, from your writing, it sounded like he was not at all self-reflective. He was just responding to what you said you wanted him to respond to. Exactly. It didn't seem introspective at all. No. And when my investigator first contacted him, his first response should have been, I will do whatever I can to make this right for her. I just haven't known what to do. I will welcome this opportunity to help her. Instead, he did everything he could to avoid the meeting. That's not a person who's looking to make things right. It's not a person who says they're sorry. He was still looking out for himself. And in the meeting, he made 
all kinds of excuses as to why he had the behaviors. He said he'd been identified as a sexual addict in counseling and that he had an alcoholic father. Well, you know, I sat there and I heard those words and I'm thinking, now his supervisor's sitting there with him. And I'm thinking, okay, this man has just admitted he's a sexual addict and you think this is still an appropriate place for him? And his church had no idea about his past. There was no, his elders of his current church had no idea about his past. Because he was, he was passed on from church to church without any, anything attached to his file that says this is a dangerous person. And his supervisor says to me, well, you know, we, he said, I was aware of some things in his past, but I believe that God changes people. And I, I believe he's a changed person. And because this happened so long ago, it has no validity. That was what I was told. I believe God changes people too. I also believe in in consequence and and uh, I, I believe in behaviors that continue without um, without true repentance. Well, and I have said many times that my abuser and anyone else's abuser deserves all the love and the grace that God gives to all of us if they're repentant, but they deserve that love and that grace sitting in the third row of the church, not standing in the pulpit. They've lost that privilege. We can forgive them. Now, let me also just add, when you have a pedophile and someone who has sexually abused minors, they don't belong sitting in the church next to anyone that's got children. So that's absolutely, they need to be removed from the church. You want to put them in the basement and listen to the sermon on recordings. That's fine. But they are to, they are not welcome back into the church to be around children so that they can take advantage and abuse again. Right. Because that predatorial behavior obviously right, hasn't, right. hasn't ended. And so, a truly repentant man would know that and say to them, I, I am, I am not safe around children. I'm not safe to be a pastor because I have an issue with uh, sexually abusing children or women. Yeah. Yeah. We had one of the churches where I pastored, we had that very situation with a grandfather and we had him up in the balcony and had three men on him all the time. Right. So he was right. never, never exactly. alone. And um, so he could still receive ministry, but, but, you know, we can remain, retain the integrity of the safety of the congregation. So um, I think those kinds of decisions have to be, have to be made. So right. T- Talk to me a little bit more about how this affected your faith formation, because obviously as a young woman being in leadership and everything, this um, in some of our most formative years, this had to have affected the overriding um, understanding of your faith and who God is and how he operates in our lives. Yeah, for me, um, you know, and as I said, I was very faithful to the church. I, I did devotions every morning. I was, you know, led prayer groups. I was so involved and so active in the church. Once the abuse ended, all of that ended w- with the abuse. He really took from me the joy and the love I had for the church. Because part of the issue is, you know, we know that these men and women are not God but they represent God and we absolutely give them some kind of authority over us that they're representing God. And so for me, I never lost my faith in God. I knew that God was always there, but I could no longer pray. Church was always difficult for me. It was, it, it, the trigger factors when I was in church were tremendous, but I forced myself to go because I wanted my children to have that experience, Mm -hmm. but I never could engage with them. So when my son would come from Sunday school, when he was four years old and say, Oh, I, we, we, I colored a picture with David and Goliath. Did you know about David and Goliath? 
I walked away because I knew I couldn't even, even in a small conversation with my four-year-old, I could not engage with him. Yeah. It just brought back too many memories for me. So it, it, I say it contaminated yeah. my spiritual life. It contaminated my church life. And that's the way I functioned for 27 years. I, I, I would walk past a minister's office. Every Sunday I walked past that minister's office, I got a knot in my stomach. Had nothing to do with that particular minister, but it was just that reminder. And so I began to accept that this was what's going to happen. And so I live live my life dealing with trigger factors and keeping them away from and secrets from my family and friends. So when right. I was having an anxiety attack, I had to control that and show, oh, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm really not okay, but I'm going to show you that I am. Right. So you have to it, put up those, yes. you have to put up those walls for safety. And yes. you know, something that, um, something that you write about in your book is that, um, not only was there um, physical and sexual abuse happening, some of that actually happened in the church building. It and did. so, and so those triggers for any church would be, would, would be horrific. Right. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, I say to people, imagine that you're sitting in the church on a Sunday morning listening to this man talk about the sanctity of marriage and, you know, loving God and loving your wife while he had sex with me the night before. You know, it just, you can't process that. And it it it, it did affect how I, I saw church and how I saw God. And after I was able to, to understand what was done to me, um, I was able to, to process the trigger factors a little bit better. And so they don't come as frequently, but they're still there. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they'll ever go away um, because the damage of what he did and what, and what he took from me, I, I really mourn the loss of that spiritual life I had before the abuse. It, it's, it's a loss for me. Yes. Um, and it won't ever be the same. It, it can't be the same. You know, it's, it's like someone saying to an amputee, well, sure, you can do the same things you did before you lost your arm. No, I can't. It's going to be different. And it might in some ways be better because I've learned to do things differently. But it doesn't mean that I'm the same person because right. I'm not. It, right. Abuse changes a person. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've done a lot of advocacy since, since you've confronted your abuser and, um, and, and I just, let me back up just a minute. Um, the end result of you confronting your abusers and his supervisors and all of the higher ups in his denomination, the result of that was what? The result of that was, thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing your story. We feel bad that this happened to you, but there's nothing we can do. And because it happened so long ago, it really doesn't uh, impact us and yeah. sent, sent me on my way. I mean, I'm thankful and grateful that they agreed to meet with me. Um, they didn't have to. I, I don't think a lot of victims get that opportunity because they are stonewalled. I think they were a little bit nervous and afraid of me if they didn't agree to meet with me. Um but basically I, I was kind of dismissed. Yeah. And they just, they just said he's, he's changed, changed. He's not the person you knew and correct allowed him to go forward. And because he is so charismatic and because he brings in numbers into the church and which means there's money coming into the church. I think there's also that aspect of it that they don't want to let go of someone who is that dynamic. And he really was, I mean, he, he, it's amazing uh, the personality he can portray in front of the congregation, but let me tell you, there was an evil side to him. And 
I, I remember even writing the book, I'm thinking, no one's going to believe that, that this guy was really this way. Right. Um, but everything in that book is accurate and true. And I know it's sometimes hard to believe. And I've had many people say, I just kept reading this thing. And oh, my gosh, this is incredible. I can't believe this happened the way it did. But it did. And um, I was lucky in the sense that many victims don't have, you know, he could have he could not have said to me, well, she's crazy. I never did that. Or she's, she's making this up because it became public. So he, he couldn't go into denial, which, you know, that was a help to me in order to confront him. Right. Right. So back to advocacy, since then you have done, um, besides advocacy for yourself, you have pursued justice and closure for other people. Tell me about that work that you've, that you've started. Well, I, I volunteer for a ministry called the Hope of Survivors Ministry, uh, which works mostly with adult women and some men, but um, but all anyone who's been abused by clergy. So I, I do conferences for them. I do some victim uh, counseling as well. Uh, I've done a victim advocacy. I, you mentioned I've been in a Maryland court where I've spoken on behalf of a victim. Um, I work for the board. I'm on the board of COCA, which is Council Against Child Abuse. Um so I, I think, you know, my goal and my my healing has been heightened by the fact that I've been to help other people. And that when I tell my story, um, it helps me just to tell my story again. But I know I'm also helping that victim because, you, you know, you, you think you're alone in this mm-hmm. and you or even if you think, OK, I know this happens, but it didn't happen the way it happened to me. Um and when they find out there are similarities or that someone else has been through it and has come through it on the other side, that gives them hope and that there's healing possible. Absolutely. One of the things that I was struck by throughout your book is I found myself grateful for you that you had this circle of women friends and that mm-hmm. you had a supportive husband and a supportive family. And so your infrastructure had um, a layer of support to it. And I realized that not all victims have that. Right. And, um, um, so your being, your being in that place is a comfort, I'm sure, to to those people. Well, and, and I think I've been given this gift that I'm able to share my story, and that I do have such a support system that, you know, I I have an obligation almost to to share my story so that I can help others because, you know, the Bible talks about God comforts us so that we can comfort others, and it would be. I think derelict of me to to not share my story to help other other victims. Mm. And for those who don't have that kind of support system around them, you know, I encourage them to maybe find at least one friend that you can talk to or seek outside help. Um, I have a list of references in the back of of my book where people can go. Um, The Hope of Survivors is a wonderful website that will give you lots of insight. And maybe just start that process and that journey of learning how to figure out what was done to you. Um, And and we we can talk a little bit. There are just a few things that I I always like to, to say to victims. And the first thing I wanna say to victims is, this was not your fault. It was absolutely not your fault. There wasn't anything you could have done or should have done to prevent this. You did what you could with the coping skills that you had at that time. And many times victims are in a vulnerable place. They've had a crisis in their life. There's been a death, a divorce, issues with family, whatever, prior sexual abuse. And this person that you should have been able to trust abuse that power and that trust over you. And you right. And ev- you talk, you talk in the book about that power differential mm-hmm. and what an influence that makes in the whole scenario. 
Absolutely. When you're in a compromised emotional position in your life, you tend then to respond in a way that you wouldn't normally respond if you were in a healthy place in your life. So that when a person who presents themselves as someone who's going to help you, whether it's a doctor or a teacher, a counselor, a priest, a pastor, or a rabbi, you give them an automatic trust. Automatically, you you turn yourself over to them and trust that they're going to help you, not hurt you. Absolutely. And that's huge. That's huge in how you respond. And you had every right to expect that. So it's not your fault. I, I And that took me a long time to come to that place because I, I, I would always kind of go back to, well, maybe I should have done this or I could have done that. No, I should have been safe with this person. I, I had every right to, to trust them. The second thing I say to victims is, it's so important to educate yourself because once you begin to understand that this was done to you, just didn't happen. This wasn't just a mistake. This was absolutely done to you. You were targeted for who you were. You learn the terms gaslighting. You learn the terms grooming, manipulation. That will help you begin to understand what was actually done to you. So, And then I, I always say your abuse is a part of your life. And it will always be a part of your life, but it doesn't have to define your life. And mm-hmm. there is hope and there is healing. Yes. I heard a speaker once say that our circumstances don't define us, but they refine us. Very and good. I've all, and I've always, that's always stuck in my head about um, that um, given my own abusive background that I'm just like, this is not define me. I am not an abuse victim. This has refined me into who yes. I am becoming. And, and, and the other thing abuse does to us, it, it changes how we think and see ourselves. And so we, at least for me, for 27 years, I lived my life with that man in the back of my head telling me things like I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't, I was too fat or I was too skinny. All these things. That he and would nobody constantly. would believe you. Yeah. Yeah. And no one would believe me. So all that defined me for so many years that when I was able to let go and and finally talk about my abuse, it freed me. It freed me from everything that he had said, the lies he told me. They were lies. It yeah. wasn't the truth. Yeah. Well, good. Well, Sandy, how do people get a hold of your book? Again, it's called Let Me Pray Upon You, P-R-E-Y, Pray. Um, how do people get a hold of it? Um, it's on Amazon. It's on okay. Kindle as well as uh, Hardbound. It's also on my website, which is my name. It's www.sandy, with a Y, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K I R. K-H-A-M.com. And the website has a lot of information there um, that will help any victim or anyone else who's just interested in this topic and how we can prevent it and what we can do in our churches. So those are the two places they can um, get my book. Great. And I will also answer emails there as well. Okay, great. Well, I encourage you again. I read this. I sent Sandy a note and said I read the book cover to cover every page. And um, and I don't do that with every book. <laughs> I I skim a lot of books, but um, but I really encourage you to get this book and read it and and follow up if if for your own edification or your own healing, it's it's well worth the while. So thank you, Sandy, for your time and for your ministry. And I'm thankful to God for the healing and the journey that he's brought you on. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. 
You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. To contact Jill, email jill at jillriley.org.